Hey there, Nat here. I hope you're doing well. I wanted to say hello before this episode begins and to just let you know that this is an unreleased episode from season one. It's a Q&A episode. We're going to be talking about a lot of different fun topics sent in by you, by the listeners. And also just to let you know that because it's from the past, it's from fall 2020, we're going to be referencing the fall. So in case you're confused, that's what's going on. I hope you enjoy today's episode. I'm Megan. And I'm Natalie. And this is Buddy Literacy Babes. We're certified fertility awareness educators. Here in this podcast, we want you to join the conversation. So welcome everyone. While we're at the top of the show, please, if you've listened to us in the past and you've enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and leave us some love on Apple Podcasts with a nice five-star review, hopefully. (laughs) But we also just love hearing from you guys and hearing your feedback on the podcast. We'd also love to hear from you with your voice messages as well. You can submit a voice message right to us on Anchor. So having said that, Nat, how are you today? I'm doing well today. I had a really nice fall walk over my lunch Mm -hmm. break, and I'm fully now back in school mode. So it's been interesting. It's been like a funny juggle of business stuff and school and other trainings, but I just feel like fall is the perfect time to like spend more time doing that kind of thing so Mm -hmm. yeah has it felt good so far like not too overwhelming or anything yeah I think the first week for sure I was feeling overwhelmed with all the Mm -hmm. deadlines but I think I've gotten into a good schedule like alternating weeks of doing things and making sure that I'm like getting out during the day so that I don't get super tired of sitting on the computer that's been huge Yeah, I went on my last camping trip on the weekend for my birthday, so probably like the last time that we'll get to go out, and it was so beautiful. It was just like really warm, like warm enough to swim, beautiful fall colors. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just a good season. It's my favorite season. Yeah, that's so cool. Cool. How about you, Megan? Well, happy birthday, first of all, and (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. We just... We've been settling in after our move a couple weeks ago leading up to the move. I was like definitely crazy stressed and I just really tried to focus on like allowing people to help me (laughs) during the move because I think I was just so afraid like, oh no, like I'm going to have to do everything. I was really freaking myself out, but my brother and my sister-in-law and my mom really, really helped us to get all the, all of the moving, I don't know, just the details and like the heavy stuff like out of the way. So that was like very much appreciated. And then ever since we've just been like really slowly, but surely settling in, which I'm thankful for because I'm just so thankful that Jesse like fully understands my pace of life (laughs) where like I'm not gonna get everything packed you know unpacked in like two days like that's not gonna happen and so the house is definitely still messy here and there but every day we're getting a little bit more done and it just feels more homey so I'm really excited because I think within like a few weeks you know like you just said like the fall weather will kick in more and I just think like stress levels are really going to go down and yeah. I'm just looking forward to everything now, just day to day. Does so, it yeah. feel like you, does it feel like you're enjoying having your own space now a little bit more? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yes. Because I think like the biggest thing for me was I wasn't always in control of like my own time and energy before because I previously lived with my brother, my sister-in-law, and my mom, and she recently had like a hip surgery. And so just before we left, things got just really intense. Like I was caretaking for for her, for my dog who was sick, for myself with chronic pain, and like everything was just a lot. And then on top of that, she's an engineer. So her personality is just like 
always so particular about everything, which is kind of tough sometimes, but being on our own now and not having to like do everything immediately and just being able to like go at our own pace is such a huge difference. And I truly feel like half of the stress that I felt like even a couple weeks ago or like a quarter of it or a third of it, like it's just way down and I'm just very... (laughs) very thankful <laughs> that's so, so good yeah. to hear and it should only get better as you probably like move in and settle in too. yeah yeah I'm excited awesome mm-hmm. well today we're going to go through some more questions that we got on Instagram as well as a question in a listener story we got so many questions last time and they're all so different that we thought we would do a second episode on the Q&As. So thanks to everybody who submitted questions and keep on sending us your listener stories by email or on Instagram DMs and what you want to keep hearing about. So I can read this first question. So this was in a listener, this was in a listener story. um, And Um, The question goes like this. (laughs) My fiance and I are trying to determine what method of contraceptives we'll use during my fertile window. I know you've discussed withdrawal as a form of birth control as well, and we're definitely interested in that. But since neither of us have a lot of sexual experience, we definitely won't depend on that for at least a few months. Anyways, I guess I just wanted to hear a discussion of options during the fertile window to avoid pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is like a super common question, right? I'm sure you you chit chat with this. I mean, about this with like your clients and stuff. Mm-hmm. Because I think with fam, an important thing to kind of understand is the general instruction for the fertile window generally with most fam, you know, fertility awareness-based methods, is abstinence. But that's not real life for many people. <laughs> and so we need to have options. And it's so important to have options. So yeah, this person mentioned with, you know, correct use withdrawal as a form of birth control. And that's 100% an option. I mean, I've come across people and I've worked with people who kind of double up on methods. They, they even triple up on methods. And what I mean by that is not just adding another condom on <laughs> or third condom on. That's not how it works. What I mean by that is, say, using, you know, a condom correctly plus correct use withdrawal or a condom and withdrawal and a diaphragm with something like Contragel, which is like a sperm immobilizer, not a spermicide. And the diaphragm kind of holds it in place, the cervix. So those are just like a few barrier method options. But I think a key takeaway is people can always like, again, add on withdrawal to another barrier method to make it even more effective. But I've also come across many people who do just choose to use withdrawal correctly And the correctly piece is like the key operative word. I think at the end of the day, what really matters is like choosing a method of managing the fertile window that you and your partner or partners all feel comfortable with and confident in so that you're relying on a method which is not going to cause extra stress. You trust it you've, you know, it's a well-considered decision, you have informed choice about it, and it's, you kind of have like a plan in place with your partner. So those are kind of my thoughts off the bat, Nat. What do you think so far? Yeah, I, this is something that I talk about with my clients as well. The first fertility awareness course that I took was a natural family planning course. So I went into this course not really knowing what FAM was and not knowing the difference between NFP and secular methods of, say, symptothermal method. So when I took this course, I was like really confused about why condoms weren't offered as an option because in NFP, abstinence is used in the fertile window. So I think 
that there is this misconception that the only way you can use FAM is to have abstinence Mm -hmm. or to not have sex during the fertile window, which just isn't the case. And at the same time, fertility awareness is going to be as effective as whatever you use during your fertile window because that's when pregnancy, the risk of pregnancy is highest. So if Mm -hmm. you're using condoms and a condom breaks, the risk of pregnancy is high because you're in that window of time. So Mm -hmm. that's why doubling up on (laughs) methods is one way of doing that, especially if you're someone who's like new to fam and anxious about getting pregnant. That's definitely an option. I know that in Canada, diaphragms and cervical caps are really hard to Mm. get a hold of and a lot of pharmacies won't fill the prescription. But I know in Europe, they're much more widely used. And I don't know about in the States how easy they are to get, but that's also an option. Um, And then something that we've talked about on the podcast before, I'm pretty sure, is talking about alternative sex and expanding the notion of expanding the notion of sex beyond PIV sex, that sex is intimacy and you can express your sexuality beyond having intercourse. Yeah. So that's why fertility awareness is so amazing for your sex life and your connection to your sexuality is because Mm -hmm. you can express yourself and find what you enjoy beyond intercourse. And the best way that I've seen it explained is like, I'm not sure if you said this, Megan, or if you posted something about this, but alternative sex is basically what you'd consider as foreplay. Mm-hmm. Like anything that isn't intercourse can be sex and it's yeah. not just PIV sex. A hundred percent. I just want to like fully back that up and just like take the idea that sex is just unprotected penetrative sex. Just like take that, ball it up, throw it in the garbage. <laughs> because I uh, it's I think it's really damaging honestly because like what so people who don't have penetrative sex they're not actually having sex no like people of all sorts and all types of partnerships like and all types of sexual relationships like there are many different ways to have sex besides just unprotected penetrative sex I think to move beyond that idea and to explore other options and consider using toys and using your fingers or your mouth or just, you know, different things. It's just, it really can open up totally different avenues of pleasure for yourself, for your partner. It's just like really fun because you're not having to worry about risk of pregnancy because there's no semen coming in contact with the vulva or the vagina. And so, I just feel like there's this whole other like menu of like potential sexual options. And when we limit ourselves to just PIV sex, penis and vagina sex as the quote unquote gold standard or whatever, yeah, it's just really damaging. So I invite everyone listening to try and just consider releasing that notion and consider exploring and like taking concrete steps to explore alternative sex. So a concrete step might be reading a book. There's a really great one called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. There's another cool one called She Comes First by Ian Kerner. There's so many. Those are just a couple off the top of my head, but there's a lot of great ones that I think can help to open up our minds to different options and I think sometimes like breaking down taboos like that or ideas like that, it takes time. People may not come around to that overnight. I do think it takes time to sort of unpack that societal expectation. This person mentioned also that they're fiancés and so they're going to be married soon and stuff. And I think another expectation, especially around marriage, is that unprotected penetrative sex has to happen on the wedding night. And this is a really widespread cultural expectation that, again, we don't necessarily have to abide by. There's, there's many different options. And like for people who are in their fertile window on their wedding night, or perhaps they're menstruating or whatever, if it's just not an ideal time for them for whatever reason, then it's completely, completely okay 
to talk with your partner and consider holding off for a week or two when you do feel more comfortable. That is completely okay. And I don't know who needs to hear it, but I'm saying it. (laughs) So that's my spiel for now. Okay, let's continue. (laughs) Yeah, I love your spiel. As you were talking, I was thinking of one thing that I just wanted to mention regarding perfect withdrawal. So yes, please. this person had mentioned that that was an option, something that we've talked about. And I go into depth with my clients around this conversation because there's really no definitive research around whether pre-cum contains sperm. And so with the pull-out method or withdrawal, there is a small, it's not 100% foolproof because if your partner has sperm in their pre-cum, they'll always have sperm in their pre-cum. So there's that to just consider. And Mm -hmm. if you're using withdrawal, making sure that your partner urinates before intercourse is important and something that not everybody knows. Yeah, that Um, one's key because it can flush out any residual sperm that may be left in the urethra from a previous ejaculation. And just for anyone who's listening who might not know, with a penis, you know, semen and urine both need to pass through the urethra in order to come out. And so prior to correct use withdrawal, that urination is actually like all part of correct use withdrawal, kind of goes into it. Some other things to consider with perfect use with, well, correct use withdrawal. I don't like to say perfect use per se, but with correct use withdrawal, so it's estimated to be up to 96% effective with correct use. So some bullet points there are the person with the penis urinates forcefully before penetration and between any rounds of penetrative sex, or so long as 24 hours has passed since the last ejaculation. This just helps to, again, flush out any residual sperm from previous ejaculations out of the urethra. It's also important to note that the penis needs to be completely removed from the vagina, like with ample time to spare before ejaculation occurs to really prevent withdrawing too late. And I think this is probably like one of the biggest things that happens with user error and withdrawal is people pull out too late, like right before they're about to come, which probably is not the safest idea. I would say ensure that there's like at least a gap of like a couple minutes just to ensure that there's no accidental transmission there, which leads me to my next point that the person with the penis ejaculates far away from the vagina and the vulva to prevent any accidental transmission of sperm to that area. And then it's also a good idea for partners just to wash off semen carefully right afterward, again, to prevent accidental transmission of semen to the vulva, vaginal opening, or any cervical mucus at the vaginal opening, which could potentially result in what's called a contact pregnancy. So when you're doing that, just be sure to like wipe away from the area with like a washcloth, for example. So let's say you're going from your, I don't know, your belly wipe up toward the chest as opposed to down toward like the pubic mound. And then a couple other things to note, withdrawal does not protect against STIs. The end. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Megan. Mm -hmm. All right, let's do another question. What kind of professional do I go to for hormone evaluations and personalized food or activity advice? I would love to hear from you on this, Nat, because I think... I definitely have an answer, but I feel like you have more perhaps personal experience with this. There's so much in this question because first of Mm -hmm. all, it depends on what you are going through and what type of supports you need for your hormones. So the first thing that I always tell people is that your general practitioner will not have the same lab ranges for what is normal as say a holistic practitioner who specializes in women's health. So a general doctor will have certain lab ranges for what is considered to be normal and a naturopath, for example, will have potentially other ranges. So if you're going to your family doctor with signs in your cycle or in your chart that indicate some type of hormonal imbalance and you get lab you get blood work done and they say everything's normal Mm. and yet you have some red flags in your chart that have been cropping up for cycle after cycle, 
that is a sign that you will probably want to seek help from somebody who is potentially more holistically minded or more specialized in women's health. So that's my first tip. And it depends on where you live and also what your financial situation is. So if you're somebody who has insurance coverage for holistic health support, like a naturopath or a Chinese medicine practitioner or a massage therapist who specializes in, say, womb massage or an herbalist or anything like that, then use your benefits, use your insurance and seek out whatever you have access to. And then the other thing is that certain practitioners are able to actually do and evaluate blood work and lab results. So from my experience, naturopaths as well as acupuncturists are able to either review the lab results that you've gotten from like a past assessment by a doctor or to have new ones done. And I've never had the Dutch test done, but I know Megan, you have. So that's something else to consider is there's a couple different ways that you can have things tested either through saliva tests or blood work. So I feel like if you have, if you have no idea what's going on, having like some tests to actually assess what's happening is super helpful. So that would be like a naturopath and, or someone who does a Dutch test. And then from there, when you have some idea of the root cause, because I think that's really important, chances are if you go to the doctor, they will put you on the pill for most reproductive health (laughs) issues unless you have a really amazing family doctor. So finding the root cause is the first step. And then looking in your area for who is specialized in women's health, who has experience or who do you know who's had good results with a practitioner, because sometimes it isn't as much what they do as who they are and like <laughs> so how they some, how they treat you and how they work with you how they work with you what their experiences and what their approach is if they have no experience working with endometriosis maybe you want to find somebody who does so that is kind of where i would start for me the biggest difference that working with practitioners has been is not only the assessment and finding the root cause, but also implementing changes into my diet and in the supplements that I take to actually see a difference. And then I also work with people to help my emotional and spiritual side of myself. So not just the physical hormones, but also everything that comes along with that. So there's a lot of different ways that we can go. I mean, Generally, in most places, you can find a naturopath, an acupuncturist, an herbalist, a massage therapist. I know there's reflexologists who specialize in fertility and women's health. There's just so many different avenues that you can go. But I think the first thing is just finding the root cause and then from there assessing what would be most helpful. What is your take on this, Megan? Yeah, I think that all of that is like really, really incredible advice. I love that you included the aspect of the emotional, spiritual, psychological care side of things because mental health is so important, especially right now, just with everything going on in the world. It's so imperative right now for us to dig deep into self-care and prioritize our mental health stress reduction, stress management is pretty much always going to be a key factor in any type of healing, whether we're talking about chronic pain or we're talking about hormonal imbalances or mental the mental side of chronic conditions like PCOS or endometriosis. Those are, you know, often lifelong conditions that people are managing and it can be hard (laughs) to do that. So I think connecting with either a therapist or some type of healer who you feel connected with, you feel like they're honoring your goals when it comes to mental health, I think that's that's really key just to make sure that we're t- you're taking care of that piece. But everything else you said I think is really incredible advice. Another resource I just want to mention, there's an Instagram account called poly.co. Polyco. 
And they are kind of a a network or a database that specifically seeks to provide a collection of doctors to help people manage their hormonal health. And so they're often posting about things like endometriosis, PCOS, things like that. And so that might be a cool place to get started. But yeah, I just want to back up what you mentioned of really, you know, if possible, as even a first step, I don't know. (laughs) I, I feel like, I sort of feel like going to a family doctor, like you mentioned now, unless it's like a really good family doctor who you happen to get lucky with. I sort of feel like it might be more productive to like skip that step if possible and just go straight to a naturopathic or functional medicine doctor. Because again, chances are going to the general practitioner, they don't have the skill set that a person needs to really dig deep into their goals and their needs for healing a hormonal imbalance or addressing, uh, you know, something like endo. Often just the skill set isn't there. And that's not a dig against the doctor. Their general family doctor. It's not really their specialty, and that's okay. But chances are they might just prescribe birth control. And I think that that can have the potential to just be like even more frustrating to the client or the, or the charter or the patient, potentially even traumatic if the doctor is just going to sit there and lecture them about how fam doesn't work and you should go on birth control. And it's like the person has already come to this place where they're trying to potentially heal from that. So getting that advice again isn't going to be helpful. So, so yeah, just to reiterate, like seeking out a naturopathic or functional medicine doctor or the ones that you mentioned before now, I think is a really great place to get started. You mentioned the Dutch test also. So I did take a Dutch complete test at the end of July, and it was a really interesting experience. It's a dried urine test. So you basically dip this piece of paper into some, into a urine sample, and then you let it sit for like a whole 24 hours for it to dry. And then you fold up those like four or five samples and then you mail them in. And then the key part is to have those results evaluated by a doctor who understands how to read and break down Dutch tests. I think they, I think the doctor needs to have like an extra certification or they need to have taken like a a course in it or something in order to, to effectively read Dutch tests. But from there, they're going to be able to tell you even more information about your hormones. Dutch tests go beyond a typical like sex hormone lab, lab panel, and it gives you more information about how the detox pathways in your body are working. So for example, like how is your body processing this specific form of estrogen? And that could be something that could be shifted for the better, potentially with some like dietary tweaks. Like for myself, I, one of the things I was prescribed moving forward was to incorporate a half cup of cruciferous vegetables every, every single day and some green tea every single day and stuff. So these aren't even, they're not even supplements per se. They're more just like really basic lifestyle tweaks. And I think that working with a practitioner who's going to have the skill set to address your needs and goals And then getting some lab testing done to see where you're at is going to be so vital in moving forward effectively. I think one thing that often can happen is people can like do some research online and learn about like 10 different supplements and then they're ordering them all overnight on Amazon and then they're just taking like 10 or 15 supplements for months on end, which is a lot of money. It's a lot of swallowing supplements. And chances are you don't need to be taking all those supplements. So I think what I'm getting at is like in order to kind of save yourself time, experimentation, and money in the long run, just getting the labs done so that you can address like what's actually happening as opposed to what you think may be happening can be a good route to kind of start on. So I don't know. Those are my thoughts. Awesome. Shall we do another question? Do you have one, Megan? Let's do another one. So how do you schedule having a business while period or, well, sorry, while dealing with your period or pain days? This is a great question. So in terms of 
pain for me and managing chronic pain in my business. I've been dealing with it for a while now. So at this point, I already have like 20 different tools in place. So just like a quick run through so I'm not here all day explaining it. (laughs) The most important thing for me, I think, is scheduling meetings only two days a week, usually. This podcast recording is like always an exception, but that's okay because it's just for a short time. But usually I only have meetings with people on Mondays and Wednesdays. And then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm able to focus more on client one-on-one support or self-care. So this means Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm often allowing my body to get more sleep. I'm going to physical therapy or exercising. I'm trying to make more time for eating regularly and things like that. I also have a lot of tools in place like a standing desk. I have a TENS unit that you wear these little electrodes and they give off electrical stimulation to the area that might be experiencing pain or tension to help the muscle tissue like kind of distract from that so it doesn't get worse. I've found that that to be incredibly helpful and effective. I also utilize heating pads, timers on my phone or computer so I'm not sitting down for too long and working all at once. And I also do use medical marijuana now. Now that I've had my card for a few weeks, I've been incorporating that a bit more. But I know that not everyone has access to that. So I think starting off with some of the other non-medication routes can be helpful. And then utilizing rock tape is also a really big one for me. I almost always lately have some type of rock tape on my back or my spine or my neck or my shoulder just to help support the area and decrease inflammation. So those are just like daily things for me every single day. And then one last pro tip, because I told this to someone a few days ago and they'd never heard of this and they were like shocked, but it's so simple. If you're experiencing back pain, especially sleeping with a couple of pillows under your knees can be really incredibly pain relieving so that your body can kind of reset overnight and not get more tense and more stiff. So hopefully when you wake up in the morning, you feel refreshed and you sleep better as opposed to waking up stiff as a board and like miserable. (laughs) So in terms of chronic pain management, that is kind of in a nutshell what I try to do in addition to like, again, physical therapy with professionals, strength training with professionals who have a focus and a skill set on pain management and injury rehab. And then literally just like I keep moving throughout the day. So I usually will go out for a quick walk and come back just so my body doesn't get too stagnant. So in terms of pain, that's really how it works for me. And I've, it's not easy. I've had to learn how to be really firm with my boundaries and my needs. And I've had it's been a requirement for me to put myself first in those ways so that I can function. So yeah, those would be my top recommendations. And then in terms of menstruation, I'll hand this over to you, Nat, in a sec. But for me, I feel like since I do all of that in terms of chronic pain, like literally daily, for me with menstruation, it's not, personally for me, it's not really a big deal. I'll often try and rest an extra bit, but otherwise I I usually don't feel much different during menstruation. So it's just a lot of that other self-care just repeated again during menstruation for me. But I'd love to hear more about kind of how you handle that, Nat. Like, do you take time off on bleeding days? Do you reschedule meetings? How does that self-care and business boundaries, how do those look for you? I think to be honest, for the past probably six months, I've only had a couple periods. So since having really long mm-hmm. cycles and PCOS, the I haven't had much of an opportunity to actually sync my work up with my cycle. For a while there, I was using the phases of the moon and like really resting on the new moon and trying to like really just like take a break from work, which was really good. But now when I'm bleeding, I try to keep work to a minimum, especially on day one of my cycle. Mm-hmm. And my work doesn't involve a ton of calls. So I'm doing a lot of work behind the scenes, like emailing and developing my course and on Instagram. But all of my calls are kind of, they're concentrated into like one month, aside from our podcast and like other random things. Mm-hmm. I don't think so, I knew that. I think I thought yeah. that you did 
calls like each week. So for you, the way you structured your business, it's more like concentrated. Yeah. So they're all at the end of the course. Oh, cool. Okay. So got it. Yeah. So once people have a few cycles charted, we um, meet and do it kind of near the end of it, um, Mm -hmm. depending on how long people's cycles are. Mm-hmm. But I definitely find it really hard to stop working sometimes. And my period is a really yeah. good opportunity for me to like have an excuse to not work and to like work from bed or just like take some time off. And I find that if I do that for like the first day of my cycle, it makes a really big difference for the rest of my period. And I don't experience a ton more pain beyond the first day if I'm able to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try my best to schedule things like podcast interviews in and around when I'm ovulating. Now that mm. I'm on a regular schedule, I'm able to actually do that, which is really nice. So I try to keep in mind the first day of my bleed, but really the hardest phase of my cycle is like the week before my bleed. Mm-hmm. So that's when I really try to strategize doing less and sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes I'm still doing things and that's okay. It's just a matter of like doing as little as possible. And Mm -hmm. if you don't succeed in, or if you're not able to take, you know, a full day off work, it's not, it's not the end of the world. As long as you're able to, when you can choose what you're doing to take advantage of that and plan for how you're going to feel. Mm -hmm. I love that. Good. That's all good to know. You mentioned that like it makes a big difference, like resting, especially in like the early days of your bleed does make a big difference throughout the rest of your bleed. Do you find that by cultivating the time for that rest, does it literally decrease your pain levels, do you find, for the rest of your of your bleed? Definitely. Like cool. if I'm also someone who, you know what, like probably like 50% of the time it's bad enough cramps to need to take like an ibuprofen but it doesn't happen super often so I don't have debilitating period pain and it's usually pretty limited to the start of my period it's not like the lead up to my period or anything but if I'm able to like be horizontal and apply (laughs) and apply heat (laughs) it really makes such a big difference like if I don't push through and Mm. if I just like do allow myself to spend longer in bed or just like take it really slow it makes a huge difference and then I actually probably like day two or three of my cycle feel really good like I feel much better than I did in the week leading up to my period Mm -hmm. I feel like refreshed and renewed and like I have so much more energy if I'm able to like take that day one and like be really like gentle with myself the week before my period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found that too. I think I, I don't typically get too much period pain like in my abdomen, but if and when it does happen, it's usually just like this dull, like deep muscle ache in my thighs. And then like sometimes it'll be in my low back. But yeah, if I'm able to just literally like stay in bed a bit longer or go out for like a walk or like a hike or something, just like gentle movement. I'm not trying to like go to the gym and like push myself hard or like if I do have to go to the gym because I don't want to like cancel an appointment or something, usually what I'll do is just like straight up tell the the person, tell the trainer like, oh yeah, like I'm just feeling tired or today like I'm on cycle day one so I might just go a bit slower or like just prefer different exercises or something and like that's fine. I think that it's important for trainers and healthcare practitioners in general to be aware of like how periods can affect performance and like mental health and all these different things. Cause oftentimes, especially with training, many trainers treat it as if it doesn't exist, (laughs) but it's so important to take into account. So, so yeah, but that's a whole different topic. I love that you're telling your trainer what cycle day you're on. That's so amazing. I feel like more people should do that. (laughs) I just do. I have no reservations. I just realized like such a long time ago, I was like, no one else is going to communicate this for me. 
this is not something that's taboo. I reject the taboo. I'm just going to say this. And if they feel like there's taboo on it, that's their problem. (laughs) And if they have more questions about it, I'm more than happy and ecstatic to explain. But I'm just so done with stuff like that. I just don't even give it any energy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I have another one. Yeah, go for it. So the question is, what do you tell people who are skeptical about the efficacy of fertility awareness? I know for me, I have like a rapid fire elevator pitch (laughs) that I say. Sorry, the the rapid fire part of it, just like, I don't know what I was picturing. Like a summary, a very quick summary of what FAM is. I was wondering if you had one too, Megan. Mm -hmm. I kind of do... Basically, I don't have one like memorized, but if someone was to say something like that to me, I would probably say something along the lines of like, it's the physiology of the cycle. People ovulate at one ovulatory event per cycle. So if you're having sex a week and a half away from ovulation, by then the egg has been dead and gone for days and days and days. So there's literally no, not a chance of conception. And essentially, FAM works by just identifying those fertile and infertile days. And then from there, it's just kind of a matter of following through with the rules that you learn. I don't know. I try to keep it very like straightforward like that. And I think part of, part of my response that gets wrapped up into that is I'm not out here to convince anyone. And if people have like, questions that they're wondering about fam by all means let's like definitely talk about it but if someone's trying to like argue with me about it (laughs) and just be contrary or something and just sit there and say like that doesn't work when like they don't know about the science of how it works I'm probably not going to get into like a debate about it I love it I yeah I that's kind of just like that is almost exactly what I say too I'm just so I think we're just so used to like saying I mean when somebody asks what we do or like is curious about fertility awareness because they know we're fertility awareness educators I feel Mm -hmm. like we have to have these kind of conversations quite often without attachment of the outcome yes like that's exactly it I don't really care if mm -hmm. you believe in it or not even believe in it you know what I mean like I don't really (laughs) care if you're on board with it or not right you asked me I'm gonna tell you and I'm not gonna tell you unless you ask me because I mean we talked about this in another episode how not to give a shit yes but listen to it if you haven't yet (laughs) (laughs) I I don't really care if you're on board with it or not it's not my goal to convert anyone but I think I say about a similar thing like fertility awareness is the practice of identifying the fertile window knowing when we're fertile and when we're not and having worry-free unprotected sex when we're not fertile because the potential for pregnancy is zero Mm-hmm. That's all I say. Yeah. And usually if people want to know more, they'll, they'll keep asking, but it's not your job to convince anyone who is skeptical of FAM that yeah. it works. Yeah. I love that you said you phrased it like just not caring about the outcome or not having an attachment to the outcome. Because like for us as FAM educators, for me at least, this conversation comes up pretty much anytime I meet someone new and they're like, so what do you do? And I'm like, well, blah, 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 blah. And so I'm very used to it by now. And I think sometimes maybe I wonder if what happens sometimes if people just get taken aback because they're just like, like maybe they don't, they probably don't mean to be argumentative or contrary. I think they are probably just taken aback because they maybe have never heard of it before or something. And then the default is going back to what they heard in like Mean Girls, where if you get pregnant... (laughs) if you have sex you will get pregnant and die (laughs) or like you know the default of like you know sort of like health class general sex education which is not very complete and I don't I don't blame anyone for that so basically pretty much what you said and I think for people out there who aren't fam educators where this conversation doesn't come up as often so perhaps they may feel more anxiety about well what if it does come up and it's unexpected I think maybe yeah, I, I don't think it would be a bad idea to kind of like have a little response on hand so that you know on your end 
you're prepared to talk about it. But it's really only if you want to. You do not have to talk about fam with people. You don't have to convince them, but it can be a really cool topic of conversation for someone that you feel safe to discuss it with, where it can be a growth experience and you don't feel like you're on the defense. Should we do one more? Let's do one more. Let me look through my list. Okay, so this next question says, part one, best advice to navigate a healthy sex life when you're never in the mood. Part two, never in the mood and or do not like any sort of touch. So my, well, Nat's first question, what would your first question be, Nat? (laughs) What did you just say? My first question is, are they on hormonal birth control? Mm. Mm -hmm. Why do you ask that? I've never never been on hormonal birth control, but I've heard that it can significantly impact and most likely decrease libido. Yeah. I've never been on it either. And what I've also heard from many clients and just observing people's experiences out in the world and in forums and stuff, so many people, and also just seeing like the data around it, so many people experience lowered libido or a loss of libido while on hormonal birth control for a number of reasons. So yeah, that I think is a really valid first question. If the answer is yes, I guess the next step would be perhaps to consider coming off of birth control if libido is important to you, if you feel like that would be potentially beneficial for your sex life with your partner. And chances are it probably would be helpful. If the person is not on hormonal birth control and they're still experiencing that lack of libido, I guess there would be a few thoughts I would have. Number one is like some people simply identify as asexual and they really don't have much of a sex drive. And for them, they don't mind. And, you know, it's, it seems to be totally fine. I'm basing this on just what I've heard and read from experiences of people who identify as such. And so if that feels like the case and the person feels like they're being pressured into sex, that might be a whole different story and a whole different way to address it. But I guess for the sake of answering the question more broadly, if that's not the case and you know, typically during normal cycling, the, this person would have a healthy libido and they're not experiencing that, then I think my next suggestion would be what else is going on on your chart in terms of cycle symptoms? Is there anything suggesting a potential hormonal imbalance? What else is going on besides this cycle symptom of a loss of libido? And again, if it's something that the person wants to address, then probably potentially getting some lab work done and connecting with a doctor who might be able to continue to help them with that hormonal imbalance. And hopefully with hormonal balance being restored, the libido could come back into more full force. Those are kind of my thoughts off the top. What do you think so far, Annette? I was thinking about, and those are all really good points and things that I would definitely want to consider as well. And then I was also thinking about the book that you mentioned earlier, Come As You Are, talking about women's arousal as really sometimes different than men's. Yes, such a good point. Keep going. I love this. (laughs) And it's been a really long time since I read that book. So forgive me if I'm getting some things wrong. But basically, like we get this idea that because men's sexual arousal is more spontaneous, like Sometimes men can look at an image or have an experience and they're spontaneously aroused and they're ready for sex. Whereas for women, sometimes it, and this isn't always the case, for some women that might happen and for others it just might take being in an environment or Mm -hmm. letting yourself slowly become aroused as opposed to it being a spontaneous, like instantaneous I don't know if those are the same thing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you're absolutely right. So perhaps instead of looking at this from a situation of like, there's no arousal, there's no libido, it could be more environmental. Like perhaps due to stress, this person isn't feeling up for sex. And maybe if they kind of nurtured that responsive desire instead by creating like, like I know a couple key tips that can actually be like surprisingly effective are having a clean room. Because 
if their room is like messy and chaotic and out of order, it can literally feel stressful to be in that room and be like, I have to clean this whole room. Like everything's crazy. I don't know. I have to go to work tomorrow. I have to, when are we going to go to sleep? We have to wake up early tomorrow. And like, it's just like a whole thing. But when the room is clean and orderly, just that in and of itself can be more inviting and less stressful. Um, So things like that can really factor in. Like, is this person tired and exhausted all the time? Could they benefit from more sleep? There's just so many elements of like self-care and like environmental setups that could benefit that responsive desire. The second part of the question was, I think, not really being open to any sort of touch. Now, obviously, since we're just going off of like that one phrase, we don't really have a ton of information to work with there, but it's totally fine. There's just a character limit on Instagram, so that's why. (laughs) But it sounds like this person, physical touch may not be a high up love language of theirs. Maybe it might be like their their lowest priority love language. And again, I don't know if this is like situational and temporary or if they've always felt this way, but from there, how could they prioritize other love languages? Like maybe if they don't like being touched in a certain way, maybe spending quality time together with their partner with like a really nice dinner or watching a movie you both enjoy instead or focusing on some of the other love languages. There's words of affirmation, there's acts of service, there's gift giving, quality time, and physical touch. So those are the top ones. And yeah, if physical touch isn't really up there for you, perhaps giving priority to the other ones instead and communicating with your partner about what really works for you, what really turns you on, what do you like that your partner does that you know, where you start to feel a response and can there be more of that and can more exploration come into the picture? Maybe listening or watching porn doesn't really turn you on, but maybe listening to erotica does instead. Or maybe, you know, listening to erotica doesn't turn you on, but receiving a massage does. It's just so different from person to person. I think that exploration piece can really be important to explore with your partner what can really work for you. I love all of that. Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's just sometimes, sometimes it could be an underlying hormonal issue or something that you might want to look into. And it could also be contributed to all the factors that you were talking about, Megan, like stress and environment and, Mm -hmm. you know, making sure that your own cup is full. And sometimes getting yourself in the mood before you have sex or like doing things that make you feel sensual before engaging with a partner might be a way for you Mm -hmm. to help yourself get in the mood and become Mm -hmm. and like foster that responsive sexual arousal. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone who submitted these questions. Yeah, these were Um, great. I like the Q&A's. Such great questions. I love these Q&As. If you have a listener story or another question, send them via Instagram DMs or to our email, which is bodyliteracybabes at gmail.com. And Mm -hmm. if you're sending a listener story, include that in the subject line of your email so we can see it easily. Where can people find you on the internet, Megan? People can find me on Instagram or YouTube at Fantastic Fertility, and that's F-A-M, like Fertility Awareness Method, and they're welcome to say hi. How about and you, I'm, I'm Fertility Awareness Project on Instagram, and my website is fertilityawarenessproject.ca. Awesome. Well, until next time, everyone, body literacy for everyone forever.